You might want to have your Bible open to 2 Kings chapter 5, and we're going to look at uh, verses 15 to 27 in particular tonight. Great to be with you. My name's Matt. I think I know everyone. I don't know if you often live, or maybe, I don't know whether you live with the same niggling feeling that I often find inside myself. A deep, persistent edginess for more or for something else. It's the kind of niggle that can become all-consuming. It can eat you up. It can become the first thing you think about in the morning, the last thing you think about before your head hits the pillow at night. It's the kind of thing that you think, if I don't get this one thing... I don't know what I'll do. That if I do get this one thing, my life will finally be complete. What is it for you? What's that niggle about? Is it more money? Maybe it's more time in your week. Maybe it's a new job, a better job, one that provides a better lifestyle. Maybe it's a better friendship. Maybe it's a new house for some of us, (laughs) a house. Perhaps it's something a little bit smaller in our lives. Maybe it's a, a set of shoes or a new set of clothes. Maybe it's an object in our life, this one thing. I've often felt like that with a new iPhone every time it comes out. If I just... Maybe it's the next, the next holiday. We live in such an aspirational culture, don't we? Where even if we have a lot, and many of us do, we can always have more. And it's only more that will satisfy us. More will make things better. I love this quote by Jim Carrey, the actor, who said, I wish everyone could get rich and famous. I wish everyone could get rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed of so that they would know that that's not the answer. Today I want to talk about how the person who has experienced God, the person of faith, that person can look at all they have, be it a little or a lot, and they can say, I have everything. We're going to look at this passage and we're going to compare these, the two lives of these two people. We're going to look at Naaman, this foreigner who becomes a worshipper of God. And we're going to look at Gehazi, this servant of the man of God, Elisha. And we're going to contrast, compare and contrast their lives. Because I think that's the point of this passage here. The author wants us to see these two different lives and to show how that someone who comes to know God and God's free gift can look at what they have and say, I have everything. They can look at what they have and they can say, all I have is everything. So firstly, Naaman. Uh, We saw last week that there's this amazing truth that comes through in Naaman's life. 
that is this, that anyone can come to God. Anyone and everyone can come to God. You don't need anything. In fact, last week we said, all you need is nothing when you come to God. This amazing story of um, the greatest enemy of Israel, Naaman, if you have forgotten, Naaman is the supreme commander of the Syrian army. That makes him the number one enemy of Israel. He's the worst possible person who comes to God. And he has leprosy, he has this disease that's incurable, he brings his power, he brings his money, he brings his prestige, and none of those things get him healing. What gets him healing? Nikita reminded us, Elisha tells him, just jump in the river, just wash in the Jordan River. It's a symbol of coming to God in humility and coming to God obediently. And we stopped there at verse 14 where Naaman gets healed. And this week we pick up at verse 15 where we see the transformation of Naaman's whole life. It's not just his healing in a river from leprosy to non-leprosy. It's the transformation of his whole life. And I want to look at this because I think in this story of his life, we're actually seeing a rebuke to the people of God. That's what this whole story is about. It's a stinging rebuke because it shows Israel, the people of God, what they're meant to be like in this radical transformation of his life. In verse 15, we see a change of mind. We see a change of heart. And we see a change in practice or a change in in worship, in how he does his life. Have a look at verse 15. It says, Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except Israel. Now that is a remarkable statement. Think about this for a moment. Naaman comes from a nation where they don't just worship one God. They worship many gods. The technical term is polytheism. They worship many gods. And Naaman, what's evident from the story is Naaman has tried all these other gods before. He's tried them all. He's been there, done that, got the t-shirt. But what seems evident is he's tried them all and they've all failed him. But now he's had an experience with the God of Israel and he realizes this truth. There is no God in all the world except the God of Israel. And these words would have stood out like a sore thumb to the Israelites as well. Why? Because these are the perfect Israelite words. This was the very thing that God had shown them. God had shown them that he is the only God in all the world. He'd proven that to them time and time again. And yet their story goes again and again and again, that although they knew about this one God, they'd gone off to find God again in in other places. And here is a pagan who has experienced all these other gods coming to this one Israelite God. Naaman, the pagan, is saying there is no other God in all the world except the God of Israel. You can imagine how an Israelite hearing that might have had a sour taste in their mouth, thinking those words are meant to be in our mouth. You can imagine how challenging that would have been to them. 
I imagine it's a little bit like, and I have this experience, uh, thankfully, kind of regularly, especially in the job that I have as a pastor at a church where I get to listen to people's story about them coming to faith. And I imagine it's like listening to someone, maybe you've had this experience, someone who's just become a Christian, you know, and they have kind of a single-mindedness. It's all about Jesus. It's all about God. I love him so much. I want to give my life to God. I'm not going to do anything else. It's all about him. He's the best. And you're kind of there thinking, yes, I know what you're talking about. But I think I might have forgotten that truth along the way somewhere. I think I might have lost my single-mindedness. That there is only one God and I know him. Secondly, in Naaman, we see a change of heart, not just a change of mind, not just an understanding, but a change deep down in his heart. Across this story, there's been a progression uh, in, of change in Naaman's heart. He comes to Israel, you know, with his horses and chariots. We read that last week. And all this money, because he expects that his power and his prestige, who he is, is going to get God's attention. And what do we find? He has to leave everything he has on the shore of the Jordan River, drop down to his bathers and wash. How humiliating. Time and time again, his heart is having to be challenged and humbled and, and changed. And here in verse 15, we see another change. This wealth that he has he says to Elisha, Now I know there is no other God in all the world except in Israel, so now accept this gift. And he urges Elisha to take a gift, all the money. He says, I was coming because I thought I could use it to buy God's attention, but now I have God in my life. And his spirit of bartering and of getting something with what he has has changed to thankfulness and generosity. And he's going, you can have it. Naaman could have just turned around at this point and taken his wealth back with him to Israel, but is willing to leave it in the hands of his enemy. Have all my wealth because of what God's done for me. What a change of heart. Thirdly, we see a change of practice in Naaman's life. We see a change in his worship. And this is the most significant change I think we see in Naaman's life. In verse 17, read along with me uh, in your head. I'll read out loud. Naaman says, If you will not, Elisha, take this gift, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant of this. Go in peace, Elisha said. I've mentioned that Naaman comes from a nation of, of polytheism where they worship many gods. He's very comfortable in worshipping other gods. And I can imagine, you know, why doesn't Naaman just add this god to his list? He worships this god, worships this god, worships this god. Why doesn't he just add the god of Israel to his list? He has an experience with the god of Israel where he goes, I can't do that. 
All the other gods are gone. And he goes to the other end of the scale completely. And he says, if, I'm, if there's even a chance that people think I'm worshipping another god, I want to be forgiven for that. Don't you love his incredible sensitivity? There's such a, a lightness. A, a, he, he's so affected by this God that he doesn't want anyone to think anything else but that he worships this one God. He's concerned for a single-hearted devotion to the God of Israel. The detailed account of his explanation. If I'm even, you know, when I'm there leaning on his arm and then I have to bow down as well. It shows how preciously innocent he is about all of this. He wants his life to be purely for God. He wants to make sure that he's free from any accusation. That his worship of God is compromised by worship to any other god or thing. He wants to do what is right. He cares about God's honour in his life. He wants to be known as someone who, although they still live in a pagan world, they're set apart in their mind and their heart for God. This, again, is an obvious rebuke to the Israelites. They'd gone the other way, from worshipping one god to worshipping many gods, time and time again without blushing one bit. The Israelites were free to worship their one God, but they'd done anything but. And here's a man who's going to be forced to bow down to another God. And he's saying, forgive me if I'm even close to doing that. So let's have a look at Gehazi quickly. We're contrasting Gehazi now with Naaman's mind, Naaman's heart, and Naaman's practice. Think about Gehazi with me for a moment. I think we see his mind, his heart, and his practice in verse 20. Have a look. Gehazi, the servant of Elijah, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and I will get something from him. Firstly, what can we tell about Gehazi's mind here? Well, Gehazi hasn't got it. He hasn't understood the message that Elisha has been sharing with Naaman. He says, my master was too easy on Naaman. The very point that Elisha was trying to share with Naaman. That God's gift is a free gift. Gehazi doesn't understand. My master was too easy. Surely we should have got something from him. And do you see, he calls... He calls Naaman an Aramean. That's a racial slur. That's what he's doing. He's going, this guy doesn't deserve God. He's not one of us. And even more, think of all the wrong that he's done to us. This is the, this is the supreme commander of the Syrian army. This is the worst possible person, and yet he's receiving God's grace for free? Gehazi doesn't get it. Secondly, his heart. We see Gehazi's in his heart. He's not a servant of God. He's a servant of himself. Many commentators note the tiny difference between Elisha's words and Gehazi's words. Elisha has said, 
to Naaman when Naaman offered him the gift of all this money. Elisha said, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not receive this gift. But Gehazi says, As surely as the Lord lives, I'm going to chase after Naaman and get something from him. He doesn't say, Whom I serve. He's not serving the God of Israel, he's serving himself. You can tell a lot of what someone's like by their actions, can't you? Have a look at Gehazi's actions. Look at his practice. Gehazi runs after Naaman. Did you notice that? How anxious. How thirsty. And did you notice Gehazi is after anything that Naaman has? He doesn't name what he wants. He just wants anything his mitts can get a handle on. Let me paint a picture of what Gehazi has seen for you in this gift. It's, it's very difficult. Um, I'm not a mathematician, but I've been told it's very difficult to try and understand how much money Naaman has brought to town. It's a lot, right? It is hundreds and hundreds of gold and silver tablets or stones, or what, what do you call them? Bullion, bullions. Yeah, that. <laughs> hundreds and hundreds. You know what they say? They reckon this is more money than existed in the whole of Israel at the time. That's how much money Naaman has brought to town. And it's been thrust in their faces. Gehazi is seeing the opportunity to become the richest man in the whole of Israel. He sees that opportunity and his heart starts pounding after it. Well, what you chase down in your life tells me a lot about what you're about. Unlike the single-focused Naaman, the single-hearted Naaman for God, Gehazi has something else that he wants. Gehazi feels like he's missing out. He has a niggle inside of him, doesn't he? But Elisha says to him in verse 26, is this the time to take money or accept clothes? Is this the time to take money or accept clothes? What's Elisha talking about? Elisha knew that if he accepted this gift, that Naaman, this pagan, would miss the message. He'd miss the message Naaman might think for a moment that God's love could be earned or bought with something that we have. And, Na- and Naaman would also miss the message. Naaman would think for a moment, perhaps this God is like every other God. Perhaps it won't fill you up. Perhaps I'll always be looking for more, just like this servant of Elisha. Perhaps even though I know God I'll still want more. Let me say something. Israel are monotheistic. Israel serve one God for this reason. Because with that God, you have everything. When you have that God, there is nothing else that you need. That's why Israel serve one God. Because all you have with God is everything. And Israel were meant to live in such a distinct way 
that you would know when you looked at them that with their God, you have everything. There's a critique here to Israel to remember that with their God, they have everything. And not to look like the nations around them because that would confuse their message. There's a sharper critique here, I think, of pursuing affluence, which is very much a temptation for us in our day, isn't it? And the reason given here for not pursuing affluence is that there's a very real possibility that your friends, that your family, that your neighbours, the people who are watching you and me as Christians will think... Well, they're just like everyone else. They haven't found the answer yet. And that their God really doesn't mean that much to them at all. That's a temptation that we don't just face one day like Gehazi and Elisha when they saw all that money. That's a temptation that you and I face every day in our city. We need to remember when we're faced with that temptation that with God in our lives, with Christ in our lives, we have everything. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul meant when he said, I've learned the secret. I can do all things. I can be, have plenty or I can be in want because it's Christ who gives me strength. Paul was saying, I'm affluent already. I'm incredibly rich. Those things won't fill my heart. Only God will. Very quickly, Ben, how does leprosy apply to your life? (laughs) Let me bring this to a close. Gehazi gets Naaman's leprosy, doesn't he, at the end of the story? It's an act of judgment which seems pretty harsh, perhaps even a little bit petty. But I think God uses it here as a warning, and he does that very rarely, because he wants us to see that if we believe and live and do like the people around us, like other nations, then our ultimate destiny will be like theirs also. God wants to replace that niggle in your life. What's your experience of God at the moment? Are you like Gehazi? Do you have a niggle for things other than God? Or are you like Naaman, with, with one mind, with one heart, for the one God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we discover in you, even right now, even tonight, for my friends, for myself, may we discover in you everything, that all we have in you is everything. Lord, keep us free from the love of other things, especially affluence and the love of money. Amen.